I felt the drive and the call. Well, here's it. I felt like that was the most useful possible thing I could do. And I tried hard. I even went to Ecuador um, on a, as a missions leader for six weeks, um, which was amazing. Another unbelievable, amazing, you know, experience that I saw. It was over kids, like 12 to 17. And it was a group of 15 guys and 14 girls. And, um, and I was one of the two guys over the, the males. And we went, you know, we did a huge drama all over the city of Quito. You could see that you could see the change in their face and stuff. Once they felt like there was somebody else that sacrificed for them, you would see like, like they would have hope. And it was, I mean, it, again, it was, it was impactful to where you see others quickly, like hold on to hope and cling to something that can create a better life for them. And then I got back um, and I felt that's when I felt like the drive and the push and the, like the calling to like, to be there for others. And, and I saw like one of the dramas, there was a kid watching the drama and some full 200 pound grown man came up behind him and smacked him in the head with like a little black jack thing or one of those like uh, little weighted things. And I got into it with him and he didn't understand me and I didn't understand him. And then the interpreter came over and was like, no, 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 you will disappear. Those are their kids. Um, and they're the little kids that run around selling chiclets and they're like homeless and familyless. And I guess these adults preyed on them and like, you work for us now, we'll feed you, but this is what you do all day, sell chiclets. And, um, and the one kid, I told him I wouldn't mess with anybody else, but we came to an agreement that the one kid could stay with me for the day. And so I carried this kid around on my shoulders. So it was, I do have a picture of that. <laughs> and, uh, it, it was, uh, it was amazing. And it was also upsetting because once I came back to the States, even the most like grateful people I knew were just like ungrateful, um, entitled, just like almost like, almost like sickening, you know, to where it's like, ugh. What? Mm. And, and of course, you know, I joined the rank of them within three or four weeks. And, and once I got accustomed to the, the, you know, I have everything culture, I'm sure. Um, but that, that stuck with me, that, that feeling of like, um, not wanting to ever be one of those entitled, like, uh, ungrateful people. Right. Unaware then, of your. Yeah. Yeah. Your totally. Just, yeah. Yeah. Just like with blinders on, like, this is my life. Mm -hmm. This is what I do. And not aware of, you know, drive past the homeless people on the corner. And just, you know, that was not my, my, I was not okay with that. At this point, have you come across or discovered, um, internal family systems yet? Or was that later down kind of? Yeah, that was far. That was, that was, um, okay. Yeah. That was probably, um, five years ago. Uh, five or six years ago is when um, I was in couples therapy with an ex and he brought it up and, and I thought it was kind of crazy, but I've always known that there are different parts. And because I, when I feel an anxious and overwhelmed, I literally can feel that I've always called him the dark passenger um, that, that arises and is like, I got this you know, and then puts up walls and nobody or nothing can get through and I can deal and handle anything and everything. And 
luckily, you know, thank God I had that because it assisted me through different traumas as an adult as well. So, I mean, and these parts that come up um, are actually protective parts and they try their best to do what they know to do, which what I, what I knew to do was to numb and abuse alcohol and drugs. Um, and so, and I did, I did know the whole teen challenge experience that was hard to apply because like the way my inner person saw that was that that's, that's just religious. You know, you can, you, you can only be a part of that if you sign up and check these boxes, you know, according to the church that you're a part of. Um, so it was hard to be able to be okay with myself, like applying all that because I wasn't staying within those lines. I wasn't checking all those boxes. Um, I had quote unquote sin in my life. Um, <clears throat> so, and um, I, I got engaged. I went on the uh, missions trip, uh, came back, nothing was good enough. So we ended up eloping one rainy day. When I, I felt that drive and stuff, I literally was like, this is too much. I am not worthy of that type of drive and calling. Um, that's for people that did not have to grow up the way I grew up. Um, I mm -hmm. felt like I had too much baggage and too much trauma and I wasn't able to like have enough self-love to be able to fit that role. So of course, then I felt, I felt like I betrayed myself. So I went back to the same old stuff, ended up getting married, um, started contracting, had our first child, our second child. After I had my first child, um, I, well, we'll say I, I was not, person that made the best choices. And again, I was scared of responsibility. Um, and because of the drug use and everything, um, me and my ex separated, uh, I ended up going back. Um, so I, down in North Carolina, I got to know my father. Okay. Um, and he didn't want to, he didn't want to be a dad. He wanted to be like a friend. I started drinking together and this is, I guess I was 25. Yeah. 25, 24. Cause I had two kids and the youngest was a baby. Um, and he ended up getting into some really hardcore drugs. And of course I did as well. Um, and then one of his friends got him to start shooting up cocaine. And this is, I, I think this was his part that continually hijacked him. He began to get belligerent and yell and cuss out my ex. Um, and so I couldn't handle him anymore. And I called my grandma, who was his mom. And I was like, you know, I'm done. You know, you have to come get your son. And so she did, even though I was called the devil for from all the family was telling me that I was torturing them. I was literally uh, having them hold on for nothing that I was evil and all this. And so she came and got him, um, took care of him for a little while, ended up going into a nursing home. He went from like six nursing homes from one to the next. Um, and I, 
I got off the hardcore stuff and was trying to kind of straighten up by my own, you know, volition of what I knew and didn't know, which of course didn't work. It would, it would work intermittently, like for small periods of time. But then once I was triggered and that, that part would, that protective part was like, oh no, we know what goes on here. You know, we know how to deal with this. We're going to close the curtain, numb you. You're going to be safe. You're going to be fine. Ended up, um, getting another relationship, um, and then going back across country and landing in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We were thinking about, we were, we were planning on starting a company, an organization, Dream Green, which is, was going to be a grow company. And it, the, the kind of main focus was either going to be to give, you know, veterans, cause he's a veteran and he's a veteran who experienced the huge significant impact that we'd changed his life. Um, and to either give or severely discount marijuana for veterans. And I began growing, um, semi legally, just like all the growers that learn to grow. And so I was, I was from out of state, of course, and we actually put in for the, the, um, to be, um, um, caretakers to be able to have, to be able to take care of other people with red cards and be able to have a higher plant count. And so we got our plant count up to a few hundred. So I found a loophole and that was that you could donate um, one ounce per person that's over 21 years older, um, one ounce per weed per person every 24 hours. And so I was like, huh, well, I know in Teen Challenge, when we went around to churches and stuff, you know, you can you can give uh, a service away and stuff and then ask for donations. So I was like, huh, well, I'm going to give away free weed and advertise it on Craigslist and accept suggested donations. <laughs> and, found your loophole. <laughs> right. And, and so I called it my pizza delivery service. And I threw that though, and I would get red flagged and I'd have to repost like three or four times during the day. And my, my operating hours that I'd cut on my phone, like from nine to four every day. It was like, and we would, we were doing everything legally. And so I was like, this is awesome. I'm helping people and it's legal and everything's going to be fine. Well, um, so they started tracking me and following me. <laughs> I ended up getting set up in Golden, Colorado um, by somebody to go and purchase 10 pounds of weed. They charged me with them and uh, they charged me with two pit firearms, um, 25 to 50 pounds of weed, which I had zero. Um, and then intended to sell and deliver. It was like, I don't know, seven felonies or something crazy. Yeah, they so had the charges like printed out before well, that's, you were still. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's what they do. That's the whole plea bargain thing, which is so illegal. I mean, that's not constitutional at all. Um, was to, to, to charge you with eight different things, you know, two of them may seem true. And then you plea out on one or two, or you're facing 50 years. Like I was facing 17 to 32 years or yeah, 17, to 32 with drugs, drugs and guns. Um, so I, I got bonded out cash bonded out of like the next day. And so I'm, I was very familiar with the legal system. So we ended up going across country to get my dad, borrowed a car, 
Um, another long story short, went through Oklahoma, got pulled over. Um, I was I was not driving. They ended up state trooper was like, I don't want to see your license to the driver. I want to see yours to me as a pastor, which that's illegal. Like what? And then ended up stripping the car down. Um, they found heroin and meth and um, a whole lot of wheat. Now, at that time, we were going to pick up my dad. Stacy, we were both into some heavy stuff. In addition, I was specific on not bringing any type of heavy stuff because this was a cross-country trip. We're picking up my dad. Mm -hmm. um, so I got arrested. Well, we both got arrested and locked up in Oklahoma. I, I was there for eight months. Um, interesting enough, when we did get locked up, <clears throat> I went in front of the judge and I didn't even know where we were. Um, I knew somewhere in Oklahoma and I asked, they, they, yeah, they charged me. Uh, they said I had $15,000 cash bond or a uh, regular bond. And I stood up, I was like, your honor, can I have a more reasonable bond? And he said, how's 150,000 cash sit down. And I was like, oh my God, where am I? Like, like what? I mean, I was just like, I was, I mean, I had no idea. And then they, they, uh, in order to use the pay phone, you had to have like a ID number that you typed in. Um, they would not give me an ID number for 10 days. And I guess, I think they were trying to see like who was going to come looking for me. Like whether, cause they thought I was this big Don Juan that DeMarco, like it was, it was ridiculous. Um, and, and so, um, oh, it's horrible. I was there eight months, ended up getting a job in the kitchen, um, got jumped by the ABs, the Aryan Brotherhood over a poker game. And so I ended up after eight months, eight and a half months, they dropped my bond back to 15,000. Um, and my dad got me out, um, because he was in contact with me through all of that. And so, um, I got out, took a bus back to, I mean, to my dad's house in North Carolina and was going to work and try to make some sort of sense of all the mess. And I had, um, I ended up getting with my dad's help, a lawyer in Colorado, a lawyer in Oklahoma and to fight both of them. Um, yeah. the, the Colorado lawyer got my continuance for like three months. The Oklahoma lawyer said that the judge, Judge Adair, would not give me a continuance, which legally I was supposed to get two, but, and they, they're just like, no, nope, sorry. And, um, so I did what any logical person would do. I went on the run. So I, my dad gave me and, uh, my ex, his Jeep and a couple thousand dollars and was like, good luck. And I was on the, the, the fugitive list. I was a fugitive for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, they ended up, they were about two weeks behind me, ended up running into my dad's house. And then I stayed with my little brother who he was actually a Navy decoder who also worked with the NSA. Um, and he let me stay with him for a while and I did not, you know, reveal my legal issues. He knew I was in some stuff and I was like, I'm working it out. Don't worry about it. Ended up leaving there. Um, and they ran up in his house about two weeks after I left. Um, and then I had a $20,000 reward on my head. Um, 
And a friend of mine actually said, uh, what got me to look at a few properties and I kind of knew what was going on, but I was so tired of staying with like friends of friends who knew me as Johnny instead of Lonnie. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what I went by. That was my bro name. And, uh, and the, uh, and I ended up waiting. We waited at a job for literally probably about an hour and a half. And I knew what was happening. I was like, this is it. Um, but I was so tired of it all. And I was like, I have to get back to my kids. I have, this has to be over. Like this is not sustainable. Um, and so I just hung out there and I knew, I pretty much knew what was going on. And sure enough, like four cars pulled up unmarked and they were full dressed, like fugitive task force um, with the laser dots and everything. I got down on my knees, raised my hands. This was in the snow too. And then, so they tackled me and bulldogged me into the ground. I was like, okay. Um, ended up locking me up there in Williamsburg. I fought extradition. They gave me 12 months because through all this, uh, I wasn't paying child support, obviously. I was on the run and locked up. Um, and so they gave me 12 months for that. And then I fought extradition because uh, Colorado was trying to get me back there to extradite me. And then they had 180 days. And I went through, went to the law library, did all the proper paperwork, filled out the demand for disposition and all that. And so they had 180 days. They did not come get me. On the 181st day, the judge in Virginia called me back in the courtroom and was like, all charges dismissed. They, I guess they don't want you. Da, 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 da. And then they were like, Mr. Duncan, you're being released. Went back, super excited. Uh, Mr. Duncan, you're being held. And, and then, so Oklahoma filed to extradite me and just to hold me there. Two days later, um, Colorado came and they, the magistrate called me down and they filed different charges, similar, but different. And then that way they're new charges. So they don't fall under the category that the judge already dismissed. All of this shit is to so illegal. And I have, right, I, like you, you got this shirt underneath your clothes that says Don Juan on it. Like uh, they're right, obviously right, right, right. your cash cow. Right. Don Juan, who tried to shoot somebody. And, uh, and um, how did they know? <laughs> I know. I know. God. And so <laughs> I, uh, I, I was like, this is so illegal. And even the jailers and stuff, we were like, we don't know. We just, you know, this is what's coming down from a pie. This is what we have to go on. Um, and I actually had when, when the, when Colorado extradited me, um, they, the lady at the front, cause I knew all these people, I again, got into the kitchen and became the chicken fryer and I uh, came up with a, a, an amazing recipe, um, for fried chicken and secret recipe was obey, was obey sauce or obey seasoning. And so all the, the high upper, you know, um, white level, white collar level people at the jail love me. Um, and that's, I also got into, while I was there, I got into um, a program that they have to visit your kids face-to-face, -face, which was really cool. Um, so for six months, I got to see two of my kids. And then my oldest daughter was 17 and they had to be 16 and under for some reason. Or when they're 18, they could come as like the um, parental 
person of the other kids. So when she was 18, I got to see her like twice before they extradited me. So you uh, you were about to tell me about the tran was the transport story next? Oh, yeah. And this is something um, that I definitely going to use any and every platform that I could possibly attain, bringing awareness and understanding like the different parts that each that we're made of. Um, and my parts were extremely protective. And when you have complex trauma, which is trauma at an early childhood age from like a parent, um, a significant person in your life, neighbor or whatever. Um, and that complex trauma has your parts like polarized where it's more difficult to be able to, um, access them. And because they're, they're, they're a part of you and they've been a part of you forever and they've literally, um, protected you and, you know, created an environment where you can survive out of the, my disassociation part and my, like the part of me that can like dark pastor that can handle anything and everything and like literally keep my, my exiles and my, my little, you know, three-year-old boy, five-year-old boy safe and keep everybody else away ended up being a vital part of me that uh, allowed me the freedom and survival uh, through this experience. Uh, I, I looked into, I watched the videos that you, you kind of like uh, directed me to and I went on the website as well. Um, and I, I really, I guess the, the difference really for what people might hear you saying and what it actually is built out to be is it's not like you're trying to get rid of these different parts of you right you're working right. with them kind of like at the table right right yeah yeah you you definitely don't if you try to get rid of the the parts that come up the private parts then what, you, what you'll do is push them away and polarize them even more where they're like oh no we can't trust you you know, we can't, we can't give you access to why we do what we do or anything because we can't trust your choices. You know, you're trying to get rid of us. You're trying to make us stop what we're doing, which will create, you know, an environment of unsafety, an environment of danger. Um, and so, yeah, you, de you definitely, you want to be loving and appreciative and understanding of these parts. You know, when they come up, be like, I totally... I feel why you're coming up right now, right now I'm safe. Cause I still have, you know, parts come up and, and you, you end up, you want, you want to be able to unburden those parts and allow them to feel accepted and safe and a part of you, like a, 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 a part of you that is healthy and a part of you that is motivating. And, um, a lot of times these parts, you know, want to help. They, you know, I mean, that's what they feel like they're doing. And once you, create awareness around it, then these parts open up and you can, you can access the exiles that they're protecting and understand why that protective part does what he does. And then you can present the like inner dialogue question of like, you know, what, what do you feel? How would you feel? What would you, what do you think would happen if you didn't do your job? You know, and a lot of times you'll get, you know, oh, well, you wouldn't be able to make it. You wouldn't be able to cope. You wouldn't be able to deal with this. Da, da, da. And then a follow up question is, you know, well, how old do you think I am? And usually that protective part will think you're still a child and that it's still protecting this five year old. And that's where it's like 
awakening where you're like, when you, when you, when you feel that response from that protective, oh, well, you're four years old and you'd be surprised, you know, it kind of sounds crazy. And that's what, what amazed me. Cause I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do this, you know, touch in, da, da, da. And literally he was like, you're probably having a critical part come up. And I was like, yeah, you know, ask, ask him to step back if he will. And, and you get to know these different parts that come up, you know, cause I have a super critic that's like, you're not good enough. You don't deserve to be in this meeting right now. You don't, you know, d- different things to where it's like, what do you, who do you think you are? You know, you're definitely too yeah. big for your britches. Like my grandma used to say, and like, you need to just, you, you need to be safe. You, you know, if you put yourself out there like that, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get rejected. And, um, and I can't allow that to happen. So a lot of times protective parts will come up and like, you know, literally push people away or have like create an attitude or like resistance for no reason. And it is this that, kind of, so these were like the defense mechanisms that, um, they didn't come all at once, right? These parts, they, they, these are things that kind of were built or manifested out of all of the different complex traumas that you, you know, continue to experience or were or were they all there? And they just kind of multiplied at a young age. Um, that's a great question. Cause that's where like me and Robert Schwartz, who pretty much developed like IFS and came out with it somewhat differ in opinions and maybe my polarization of parts is, is, was just extreme to where I didn't know I had these parts because the IFS system, the modality says you have all your parts when you're born, you have all your parts, which makes sense on some things. And it's, and some parts can, can learn those protective ways and learn their position through those traumatic experience. Like, Oh, this is what I'm, this is what I'm meant to do. This is what I'm passionate about. This is how I'm used. You know what I mean? This so that's is how they're activated depending right. on. I would say activated is a good word or, or like, um, assigned being like, you know, this part comes up and it's like, okay, this part wants to deal with this. And, and I think a lot of that's unconscious and you know, you're not necessarily aware of that. And you, you learn all this information once you're locked up for a long time. Um, if you get extradited, you can't take anything extra with you at all. You can take any, everything you're wearing. <clears throat> and this was, I think it was June, mid-June in Virginia, and it was probably 95 degrees outside. And so I was imagining um, being extradited in an air-conditioned van. And actually, I thought I was going to fly, like, because it's Colorado. Um, and so I put my uh, all my whites on, like five shirts, five socks, like three, four pairs of boxers, um, my long johns, everything. Cause it, they keep the temperature in prison jail very low because that mm-hmm. keeps everybody's attitude and their, you know, tension and everything lower. How is that, um, like productive and, um, helping people like learn new ways. And anyway, so it's, this is what you did. Now this is, you're being punished. You're not being rehabilitated at all. You're being punished beyond, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're being caught up in a system and taught to, to behave the way the system wants you to behave so that you'll get right back out, come back in the, you know, like the recidivism rates are crazy. And it's like, that's another thing I'll bounce around um, that I don't get. It's cause like, okay, if these percentages are so low, then guess what? 
it's not fucking working. I, yeah. I, so it's like, go, go back to the board and, you know, let's, let's reanalyze and find out something that does work. Find out that something that does appeal to people to stop abusing drugs and, you know, and becoming violent when they don't get them. And because Bonnie, I mean, that's too reasonable. You're being way too reasonable. Right. That's and it's so sad. It's, well, just, it's too simple. And it's the people in ice boxes. That's that you and I know we could, we could go back and forth on this for a second, <laughs> but you had your, your 18 layers of clothes on and yeah, you're being extradited from Virginia to Colorado. Right. And the people at the front desk, like I was saying, I knew, I knew them all. Um, and so she was like, well, I don't think, I think I'm supposed to give this to the guard, but here. And she handed me like a two inch packet of everything. And what that was, was all of like the explanation, all of the wit, apparently there was like 16 witnesses against me. And I mean, it was the whole, it was everything um, from Colorado. And it was like the letter from uh, governor Hickenlooper for extradition it was like, it was like everything. And I had it all and I was like, okay, cool. And I still have it all because it shows the different illegal illegalities with the magistrate, with the timing, with all of that. Um, so, and so she, she, the lady officer walks me back to the van and opens up the back of like a Astro cargo van, not like a big minivan, like an Astro cargo van, all white blacked out. And there's seven other people jammed in the back, shackled. Like we, like our handcuffs, our hands were cuffed, our ankles were cuffed. And then there was a chain running through the loop in our handcuffs to our ankles. So we were literally like, we had like three feet to move. Um, and I was like, I was literally already sweating. And she's like, okay, get in. And it was like a thousand degrees. And I was like, I'm not getting in there. Not with all these on. I was like, you can either unhandcuff me and I can take all these off or, you know, I'm not getting in there. You're gonna have to go get the goon squad. Um, and so she was like, I'm not supposed to do this, but I will. So she unhandcuffed me. I took all my layers off and had like this big giant bundle of clothes. And I was like, well, can I at least take them with me? She was like, I don't care. <laughs> you know? And so through, through the trip, I ended up trading them off for like extra cheeseburgers and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> So I got in this van and literally like, you're like this up against another person. There was no AC. It was like 120 degrees. People were stripped down to like their boxers. Um, oh, it was, oh, it was crazy. Um, we were all shackled to like a bar in the floor that we were like put through. Um, and we started our journey. Um, we went straight north. In Virginia, we stopped by different jails and everything else. Went through New Jersey. Um, they and each each stop we would make, they would actually go through intake of like jail intake and take pictures of us, fingerprints and everything. Um, and my later on, my my youngest daughter was like, "Dad, what in the world? You're you're a you're a lifetime criminal. You've been arrested in like 17 states." And I was like, "No." No, that, that just shows. And I don't know if that's why they did it, but like each place we were, we, we got intaked into or the process went through, like that shows that we were arrested there like forever. <laughs> what? Yes. And uh, so they ended up and we're, we were federal employees at the time when you're being extradited and you're not supposed to go in general pop, general population. 
And uh, going through New Jersey, I guess they didn't have um, separate quarters for um, like transport. And so they put us in general pop um, and it was me and like three other guys. Um, and literally, and at the time I'd been locked up for a while. So I was like 215 pounds and I was ripped and ready to go. Um, and when we went to this, they called it the green giant. Um, when we went there, they, they put us in this pod, no mattresses, no anything. Um, and the, and I was like, well, what about the mattresses? He was like, well, you just have to find your own. And the, the front guard, he did not care at all. And so, you know, these three guys, I was with two older gentlemen and another guy. One of the older gentlemen was for, was being extradited three states away for fines. Another one was being extradited for a second DUI, like into Michigan or somewhere. And I mean, I was just like, oh my God, this is so sad. Um, and then come to find out through that, through that summer, one, another old guy with another van died because the conditions were so bad. Um, and they, they did have a camera in the back um, that was busted and hanging. <laughs> so, so like when they dropped us off at the Green Giant, like literally there was groups of guys trying to buy um, one of the other guys off of me because I was obviously the, the, the one that could handle my own. And I just told the other guys, I was like, stick with me, do not wander. Um, and I went, like the, uh, officer told us, I don't know, like if you have two mattresses, like a double up is what they call it. Um, the guards will go around and collect the secondary mattresses. Well, the guard told me, it was like, well, good luck, you know, go get your mattress, you know, and find a bunk. And so I had to walk around with these guys and get each of them a mattress. And then they slept in the floor of the cell that I slept in, um, for two days. <clears throat> which was crazy. I mean, it was, oh, it was, it was crazy. It's inhumane. Yeah. You definitely oh, experienced I mean, and witnessed the most inhumane and, thing. And see, and here's the thing about the, um, <laughs> yeah, he didn't like that either. Um, most people, oh, everybody I know, once they get out of the penal system and everything else, they're terrified of it. They're terrified of confrontation. They're terrified of conflict, of going back there, and they have nothing to do with it. They're not going to bring up any of the illegalities. And I've determined, like, oh, oh no, my drive is to, you know, address this stuff, get back on my feet, address this stuff, and figure out, like, oh, it was, I can't even explain because we, we were like urinating in plastic bottles they were rolling around the floor um oh it was uh one guy crapped on himself because the uh the officers like they're called um you know because it took me 21 days okay through transport we went all the way up to like almost to maine back down to like um what is that um new hampshire or not new hampshire back down to maryland and then across um, so it was eight days in the van and then we went back right next to Virginia and I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Like you literally picked me up on purpose to take me on this road where you went within three hours of where you could have picked me up after eight days, all that. And then when we came back down, they dropped us back off at the green giant. Did you, did you find that like, this was the point you're just like, no, this is, this is the point I need to start helping people dealing with the penal system uh or did tell me how that came about to like what you're trying to like do in school okay. now as you as you 
go through your lessons and, and classes. Cause I'm interested in all of this is one huge collective, obviously of so much depth. And I really want you to talk a little bit about, um, where you, that you, where you see all of this taking you now. It wasn't like seeing to that, like when, when you're, when you're literally shackled to a van like that and going through that is literally mentally in order to even be okay. Cause one, I'm semi claustrophobic. And so I, I literally had to like disassociate and seeing like the misery and seeing going through all that, um, and hearing people's story, um, and how they were like good people. Like, I mean, it was like, they were good people that made bad choices. And a lot of times the bad choices was because of like trauma or like circumstantial or like lifetime trauma that had happened in their life. And so when we were ended up going through and they dropped me off at Kentucky as like a holding place. Um, and again, that's when, when I was laying in there, I was like, there's no way I can ever, if I get out of this, there's no way I will, I will be able to know that that's going on and not try to address it and bring awareness to it. Because like I, anybody that I know has, has been incarcerated or whatever, they don't want to ever touch anything or have speak about it or talk about it. They just want to wipe it clean from the record, but that does nothing for those that are still suffering from the injustices. Right. It's facing that shame, that guilt, and that shame, and just that miss that maltreatment people give you. Um, yeah. And scared to out. death. Yeah. And scared to death yeah. because once you're in the system and once you're treated a certain way and it's okay. And like, it's okay. Like you can be thrown around and just treated. However, um, then it's like you have this like any fear of authority and fear of trying to go against conflict or bring up stuff, even if it's immoral, you know, trying to go against it because it's like, oh, my God, I have a record now. They're just going to lock me up again. So my case is not that my case is like, OK, now it's time to shout it from the rooftops and bring awareness to those that think, you know, these are, you know, everybody's just criminals and they need to be tucked away and they need to be punished. And no, they're just normal people that have drank and drive like everybody. You just didn't get caught. That's all. Right. <laughs> Not you, proverbially you. Times, but I, I don't know how many times I've heard that from you, either friends of mine that are in my close circle or just people, people. I mean, yeah. like it is astonishing what the penal system can get away with. Because they have there's no accountability. I know how drastic, yeah, I know how drastic that sounds, but it's not no, it's like it's absolutely true. I mean, the same reason why cops are getting away with killing people now, there's starting to be accountability, but there needs to be a third party accountability for any type of organization that has power or control over another human being. Period. You you need another absolutely. third party outside opinion, empathetic minds that understand and can see and their perspective is not skewed and they don't have biases against criminals. And, you know, so it's, um, and I, I'm, I mean, that's a huge thing to tackle. And I know that, you know, I'm not able to do it alone, but I will be able to bring some awareness. But to you do situation. obviously have that energy from your, you have that energy from your own situation that like, rather than it putting you on your ass, it, you know, with that fear that so many of the people that you met experienced, you're like, no, I'm not, no. And I, I 100% get that from my own personal experience. Like I'm not, this can't be put up with. 
This is right. really, really, really crap. And yeah, so, it's not okay. you don't want to be misjudged. I don't want to be misjudged. We all make mistakes. So therefore, um, it just has to stop. Right. And, and I, you also want to have empathy and kindness and advocate for those who could be in your shoes acting as well, but you know, their situation stands against them rather than for them. And so they ended up dropping the guns and charging me with the weed, which the fictitious weed and giving me four to eight years. And I'd already, the judge was, was decent. He counted my Virginia time and he counted my, my county time there waiting on court. So I had like a year and a half left. I went to Sterling, which they put me behind a kill mm-hmm. fence for growing weed. Um, I had like seven murderers on my wing and I was there for growing weed and people didn't believe me. I had to show my paperwork and stuff. Um, and it, you know, and I spent time there and this is when, this is when the actual like resounding change went on. Like one day, um, I was sitting there listening to the radio or no, it was a TV watching TV. And like, there was this like meditation channel and they were just like trying, like talking about calm breathing. And I was like, I guess I watched this stupid stuff. And so, um, and so I, I it like within five minutes, I was like, I feel like this, I need to do this. And so I started meditating. I started yoga and like, I would have these weird, like, almost break down, like just crying, uh, fits in my cell at Sterling. And I didn't know why I was just like, it was almost like I was just unloading. And then it was almost like universe, God, what have you, the driver of this rock, um, was like reached down and was like, you know, your life's not over. You know, you have much more to go. And like, I didn't understand. And it was, sorry, I get like emotional with all that. But I was like open to like accepting and believing and trusting and hoping that this was not my end. Cause if I got, if I got, you know, cause the first offer in Oklahoma is 20 years. And so if I went back there, um, I would at least have a minimum of 20 and my children be adults and I wouldn't, they wouldn't have anything to do with me. And I already, and I knew that wasn't my path. And so I just kept meditating and I just, just be in a space, like just try to calm. And I started, you know, breathing, deep breathing and would just try to shed off all these negative things that would come up, which now I know they were like my critical parts and my, you know, the different traumas in my past, you know, trying to control my perspective of things. And I was like, no, you know, my, my path is not this path. This is not the end. This is not my life. And then out of the blue, my case manager called me up and was like, do you want to go to a halfway house? And I was like, yes. Oh my God. And uh, so out of nowhere, all of a sudden I had like a hope of life. And they, she told me that Oklahoma dropped their warrants. And so I got out and aced the halfway house, you know, um, did amazing. And my case manager was there for seven years. I was the first one that graduated the halfway house in her time, which obviously like people, I don't understand why people aren't saying, oh, this shit doesn't work. Let's change right. our approach to it. person in seven years has got through this halfway house. Hmm. Right. right. After, and they're, they're, the yeah, 
And they're literally looking back at going to prison. And how, how could anybody, you know, think that that's better or anything? That's just all they know. They don't know a different identity. Mm -hmm. They don't know a different lifestyle. And that's my drive is to bring awareness to, you know, getting in touch with your true self and not having to listen to those parts that come up and then say, you need to close the curtain, go get some dope. You need to close the curtain, go to the liquor store. You know, you can acknowledge those parts and say, oh, I, I understand why you're there. I, I totally get it. You want to keep me safe. I'm totally safe. I don't need to be numb right now. And you just, you know, they kind of melt away. And which is amazing. It's surprising how much inner dialogue goes on if you pay attention. And so I got out. Um, I kind of, um, I went through, I was in like a tough relationship. And of course, I was not by any means fixed or even like on the path to fix. I, did, I was still trying to just rely on that experience I had in Sterling to carry me to um to the life i wanted which you know all experiences are great and everything and you can look back on them but you can't rely on any one of them to like drive you so that didn't that didn't work out and uh i kind of started drinking a little bit and that you know it's a slippery slope and so of course my body you know knew exactly um those types and forms of coping and sort of went back there. And I didn't go down the dark opiate hole at all. I never use opiates again, except for like surgery or something. Um, they're evil, um, physically, mentally, emotionally. And I got into a relationship about a year after I got out and she wanted to go to couples therapy and um, because she didn't know how to deal with when I would talk about some of this baggage and some of the traumas mm -hmm. and stuff that went on. Her for making that call, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so we went, we went to therapy and Ian, he was the one who introduced IFS to me and EMDR um, and to touch in and immediately, like, it was almost like my system, my, my inner system, like immediately was like, Oh my God, this is, this is the answer we've been waiting for this. This actually creates um, understanding around everything, like all my actions, all my running, all my, you know, resistance to change, everything made sense. And so I took it and ran with it. And like I still right now working on my book, The Sun Will Always Rise, I, I meet um, with my therapist usually like twice a week to go over stuff because these parts are so active walking through all of the different experiences and it has been absolutely empowering even during these times that parts come up and I'm able to address them. I'm able to appreciate them. I'm able to have them step back and everything's fine. Nothing, the, the world doesn't end, you know, like I don't die in my sleep. If I, if I choose not to be hijacked by that part and listen to it and go close the curtain, you know, and that's where our minds play tricks on us, where it's like, oh, my God, you have to do this and that you have to do that. That's the only way you're going to make it and be safe. The parts thing, I'm, I'm in IFS training right now until March, which is amazing. It's like and it's it's kind of intense. But it's doing the training through. Is there? Um, yeah, IFS Institute. Well. It's, it's okay. from Robert Schwartz himself. 
Um, the IFS Institute is this one, six months. It's not level one, level two, or level three. I think this is like a preliminary for, to be able to, this is uh, foundations. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, we were on a live webinar with Robert Schwartz. I got to ask him a couple questions, um, which is pretty cool. You got to talk to your idol. I love it. And it, it, it was, it was pretty, I was so nervous. I was sweating and stuff. Um, <laughs> and, you know, hopefully I want to have him take part in my book because throughout the book, I, I, I label like the trauma is going on. I, yeah. And I, I label the parts that come up. And how, you know, those parts hijacked me and how, like, the development of my parts and how they became to be so protective and so intense and, like, controlling over me. Um, and I'm, my goal is to, I want to create a program that is IFS, that has IFS involved, that's strength-based, evidence-based, that also is positive peer culture, that allows, you know, the same age healing to go on like because i mean my daughter i have three adult kids that none of them listen to me and even if i agree with them i can't agree correctly so it's like because they I, they can't relate to me they don't think i can relate to them until they read my book then they'll be like oh 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 my gosh just can you think have you ever thought about <laughs> your daughters or are you have three girls i have two girls and a boy have you haven't thought yet about what it's going to be like once they read your book all I mean, they, of the, oh my God, I can't believe dad. Holy shit. I get it now. Dad <laughs> moments they're going right. to have. Oh, I'm sure. And it's, I mean, I think that'll be freeing for everybody because there's definitely, when I was gone for five years, like I missed my oldest daughter's graduation from high school. Like I missed a lot. And that's yeah, where I deal with some resentment and anger with me because it was like all illegal, even though it got me on the path I am now, which I understand I'm grateful for. You know, there's, I go back and forth on that. Um, so, yeah, and it's, um, I'm a senior at CSU, graduated in March, working on my, my book, Addressing Trauma and Parts. Um, just to give a quick thing, I see we have a few minutes left. Um, and uh, I'm starting a podcast. Um, and it's, you know, my goal is to become IFS certified level two. and become a trainer in the IFS system with the IFS Institute and help be a part of a program. I want to collaborate with, um, you know, some great minds to develop this program and to help young adults become aware and understand that this isn't a cure-all, but it can be such an amazing tool to be able you know, to avoid a lot of those pitfalls or at least understand and mitigate those pitfalls so that there are a lot lesser pitfalls, you know? Maybe you have something extra add on to that. But if you were webcamming, meeting with yourself, uh, your 13-year-old self, since that happened to be such a lucky year for you, um, <laughs> what would you want to tell your 13-year-old self or anybody that could potentially be watching this and find themselves in the same 13 old shoes that you were in. I would say, um, throughout everyday life and your walking life, understand and be aware of other people's issues and parts and problems and daily struggles 
and see them similarly as your own to, to be able to bring, you know, empathy to the situation and to be, <laughs> and to be able to um, actually connect with people because I don't think a lot of people truly like connect. Everybody goes about their own life with their own intentions, with their own goals and everything else. And I think if, if in general people would broaden, you know, their perspective and allow others to become a part of their life and connect, you know, it would be a more empathetic, understanding community and society versus it's real easy right now. If somebody makes a mistake or whatever, oh, you're gone. You're out of the picture. Oh, you're out of the picture. Until, until I would say the, the problems or the legal system or the drug addiction or the alcohol abuse or the physical abuse affects that person or that family. And then, oh, it's look at this huge issue. It's everywhere. And it's like, okay, well, why, why does it have to take that? Why does it have to take your son becoming addicted to heroin or ODM? Or why, why does it have to take these huge drastic things to understand and be aware of what's going on mm -hmm. all the time? Absolutely. Yeah. It's either you can take the, the opportunities to address what is in your way right now, 13 year old self or whatever it might be, or you can almost guarantee that you're going to have so many decades of life for that. It's just going to be hell. And it's not right. all anyone's, you know, just their own fault, but you have to pick and choose your battles. And, you know, if no one else is going to, the best advocates are the ones that are going to advocate for those who have similar experiences than them. Um, right. And that's hard. You are doing something really, really hard. I mean, that's an understatement. Yeah. And, and I did do a, a, a experiment real quickly because writing this has been so healing for me and it has mm -hmm. been so trying where I literally have to take breaks and now have like crying fits and do breath work. And like, it sometimes feels like, oh my gosh, you know, this is just too much. And then visiting back, like yesterday, I told a friend of mine, I walked through some of the experiences to see of my trigger and see how it felt. And the things that I've that I talked to him about that I've already wrote about, literally it was fine. It was okay. I felt like a little anxiety and a little kind of uncomfortability, but it was like, oh, okay. And that was it. It was like, my evening still goes on. Everything that I'm still doing, I'm still doing. Um, you know, I don't, that's not throwing me awry. Like I'm not locked up again. I'm not 13 again, strapped down. Like it's, and I know those same feelings, those re-traumatizations come back. And it's like, once I, I got them out and kind of understood the parts and everything, like the whole scenario, it's like, oh, okay. Once you see it and you figure it out, you will have the capacity to turn around and be like, oh, I found the last piece of that puzzle. Like now I can see the whole image clearly. And I mean, I don't know about you. I'm completely certain we're on the same page about this, but that is why we do this work <laughs> is because right. some people just don't feel like they have the capacity to stand up um, or, you know, even just fall down if it's necessary. Right. Uh, and right. it is because you get to this point and you're like, Yes, I'm awesome. <laughs> I healed this. Yeah. And it's never alone. But right. that's why it's okay to fail. Right. And it's mm -hmm. sometimes it's productive yeah. to fail. And fa I mean, failing literally can 
bring you to new levels and to open up new doors. And and if you don't have failure, you don't even know what success is. That's just like without dark, you don't know what light is. It's something that we have to get used to and we have to understand and we have to separate from those complex trauma responses and those we have to separate okay we failed at this this didn't work out but that doesn't mean we're four years old and our mom's telling us you're going to be just like your dad no that means we failed at this but you know maybe this will succeed it doesn't it doesn't have to re-trigger and take us back to being worthless or you know um not smart enough or not good enough and you know, everybody's experienced those feelings or when you're being bullied, you know, you're, you're ugly or you're fat or whatever the insults may be, you know, when we fail at something, like if we fail at like working out, like I was supposed to go to the gym this morning, I didn't, that doesn't mean like, oh, I'm going to dive cholesterol, high cholesterol and, um, you know, being unhealthy and going to gain weight. It's like, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll try to go tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new day. The sun will always rise. Special thanks to our guest Lonnie for joining us for a two-parter at the roundtable. Listen, like, and share this episode and others over on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.